This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Would you take your Bible now and go to Psalm 63? I'm very aware, Matt and I are very aware that Pastor Jeff has on his heart um, burdens he wants to bring to us at the beginning of the new year. Um, And even though those will come to us a week later than scheduled, um, we really look forward to hearing how God is stirring and how God will be leading through Pastor Jeff's preaching. Um, I was not planning to preach this morning. This was not a part of the plan. And so one of the things that's happening in my heart that I guess in God's providence I have the opportunity to spill over into you this morning is how God has been reminding me of just some of the things I just shared. How very often the way God meets with us in dry times is to bring us back to old paths. Old paths where we've met with God. Old paths where God, God's presence was, was palpable, where God's grace was vibrant. Old paths where we, where we remember that, yes, there were times where God met with me in significant ways. And when we go through dry times, when we go through trying times, sometimes it's remembering the old paths that set us up for new mercies and grace from God. And one of those old paths for me that I find myself returning to over and over and over again is the psalm I want to share with you this morning. Psalm 63. Psalm 63. This morning I want to preach on the priority of pursuing satisfaction in God. Psalm 63. Let us hear the word of God. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. That is God's word. May he add his blessing to his reading and preaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. C.S. Lewis wrote the following. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Let's be honest. Everyone 
in this world. Everyone in this room is looking for satisfaction. It's true about you. It's true about me. We look for it in people and experiences, in our vocations, in our relationships, in our possessions, only to find out. Like the rock icon Mick Jagger once said, I can't get no satisfaction. But we try, and we try, and we try. What does it mean when nothing in this world can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart and soul? C.S. Lewis argues, and I agree, that the most probable answer is that we were made for another world. If nothing in this world can give us what our hearts truly long for, then the most probable answer is that what will bring us satisfaction is out of this world. Charles Spurgeon, you know you get a quote from him today. He famously said that there is a God-shaped void in every soul that can only be filled by him. That's the teaching of the Bible. Every single one of us, every single one of you has a God-shaped void in your soul that can only be filled by him. And any attempt to fill it with anything or anyone or any experience other than God will always fall short of bringing the ultimate satisfaction we all long for. And that's because the Bible teaches quite plainly, and this is our big idea this morning, God and God alone can satisfy the soul. God and God alone can satisfy the soul. And that, my friends, is Psalm 63 in a nutshell. God and God alone can satisfy your soul. What God offers to you in himself What the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit offers to you in himself is more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. This is a song, Psalm 63, about satisfaction. And the verses of this song reveal that ultimate satisfaction cannot be found in anyone or anything in this world other than God. Ultimate satisfaction will never be found in this world. Ultimate satisfaction can only be found in the one who created the world, and his name is God. And so David writes the song rejoicing the fact that he has found what he's looking for. And if you still haven't found what you're looking for, then you will find in our text today an answer to one of the deepest, most significant questions in the human heart. What? What can bring resolution to the ache in my heart to know joy and satisfaction that actually lasts? So this is the reason why David wrote this psalm. He's satisfied, and he wants us to be satisfied as well. Look at verse 5. My soul is satisfied. Don't you want to be able to say that? Don't you want to be able to sing that? My soul is satisfied. My heart is 
content. I might not have everything I want, but right now, I sense that I have everything that I need. And that's the reason David writes the psalm, so that you can say those words, and because it's a psalm, sing those words as well. My soul is satisfied. So how do we get there? How do we get to the place David has arrived? How do we get to that destination? What's the way there? What's the pathway? How do we get to the place where we can say with David and mean it, not just because the words are on the screen, not just because the words are printed in front of us. How can we get to the place where we can spontaneously, genuinely, personally, with integrity, say like David, my soul is satisfied. Come on, church, you want to be able to do that, don't you? How do we get there? The lyrics of the song take us there, church. Psalm 63 maps out a pathway to the satisfied soul. And so let's follow the path. Let's go through the movements of this psalm and see if we can see with greater clarity how we can pursue a satisfied soul. First, our movement toward a satisfied soul begins with owning God personally. Owning God personally. Notice the first phrase of this song. Oh God, you are mine. Oh God, you are my God. Literally in the Hebrew, Elohim. You are my Elohim. And the reason why I bring up this Hebrew name for God is because it takes us to the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As we look at that first verse, as we consider that first verse of the Bible, God is revealing himself. But what do we know about the God who reveals himself in the book of Genesis? He is amazing, but he's also complex. He stretches the human mind. On a human level, he is truly incomprehensible. All we know is what he reveals. And what he reveals at times is extremely mysterious. For example, in that opening chapter of the scripture, we read that this amazing God, this Elohim who creates and sustains all things is triune. Let us make man in our image. How about a theological curveball in the very, very first chapter of the Bible? In the beginning, God, singular, creates the heavens and the earth. And then the first words out of this God's mouth that are directed towards man are, are let us make man in our image. Does that not give you a charley horse in the brain? God is accessible. But church, let's not, let's not think we got him completely figured out. Now, this is a providential moment. Didn't plan on saying this. As we go into 2022, let's not go into this next year believing we know all that there is to know about our God. Let's believe that as we press into him in 2022, that God has new and glorious things to reveal to us about himself through his word, new insights, new meditations, new dimensions of his manifest glory that's revealed to us in his world and in his word and in his works. Let's believe that we don't have God figured out. I mean, we don't even have each other figured out. Married men, you don't even got your wife figured out. How do you think you're going to figure out the triune God? Here's David saying, oh God, 
you are my God. And it's this accessible, yet extremely complex triune God that David is saying, you're mine. You're mine. You're my God. And so the pathway to a satisfied soul begins with this confession. It begins with this profession. The God of the universe, the triune creator and sustainer of everyone and everything, that's my God. And every other lowercase g God is a fake God, is an idol. The one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, who reveals himself to me in all his glory and splendor as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one who reveals himself as the maker of all things, the sustainer of all things, and the redeemer of all who trust in Christ. This God is my God and I own him. I am in relationship with this God. And so the pathway to a satisfied soul begins with owning God, the God of Scripture, the God of creation, the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, co-equal in glory and splendor and majesty, distinct in person. This God is your God, and you know him, and he knows you because he's been merciful to bring you into relationship with him. The pathway to a satisfied soul begins with recognizing on a daily basis, I am in relationship with God. Notice, second, that this satisfied soul that we're after not only begins with owning God personally, but notice, second, that it, it, it continues by desiring God desperately. Desiring God Desperately. Notice the way David describes his desire for God. He's not simply satisfied with having this relationship with God. He wants to experience his relationship with God. And that experience begins on the, on the, on the innermost level of desire. Notice the way he describes his desire in verse 1. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints, or maybe another translation would be hungers, longs, has an appetite for you. Notice that David says he desires God like a thirst. What are we most frequently thirsty for as human beings? Some of you are holding them in your hands right now. Well, you're either holding coffee or water, but I'm thinking water, okay? We thirst for water. Our, our human bodies were created to be dependent upon water. In fact, they're mostly water. We need water to survive. If we don't drink water, our bodies will literally shrivel up, dehydrate, and expire. We cannot live without water. When I was a kid, I thought I couldn't live without Coca-Cola. When I was in college, I thought I couldn't live without coffee. Now that I'm an older man, I realize that even though I like those things, the first thing I need to do in the morning is drink a big 
glass of water. It lubricates the body. It, it gives me what I need to keep going. I can have those other things, but I cannot go without this one thing. I have to have water every single day. So what does David mean when he says, I thirst for you? This is not some romantic expression of desire. This is an expression of desperation. God, if I don't have you, I'll die. I need you like my body needs water to survive. I'm thirsty for you, God. David's thirsty for God. First and foremost, this isn't everything, but this is the fundamental thing in this psalm. David's thirsty for God because he realizes that if he does not have God, he's done. He's done for. So it's not enough just to have this beautiful, gracious, covenant relationship with God. David needs to, within the context of having this relationship with God, experience it. And his heart is aware of it. He longs for it. He's thirsty for it. So let me ask you this. Is that how you feel about God? Are you desperate for him? I'm not asking if you have a personality that may express it like people who are a little bit more outgoing and expressive. But deep down in the recesses of your heart, are you aware that if you don't have more of God, you're done? That like your body needs water? Like your lungs need oxygen? Like your body needs food? You need God. David's desperate for God. And Jesus, when he walked the face of this earth during his incarnation, he, he, he wanted to press this in. Even by the ways he would describe himself as the I am. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. This maps right on to Psalm 63. I thirst for you. I long. I hunger for you. And Jesus says, I'm who you're thirsty for. I'm who you're hungry for. I'm your water. I'm your bread. Jesus goes out of his way in his teaching to make it crystal clear. If you don't have me, you're done. Man cannot live by bread alone. There needs to be spiritual nourishment for the soul. And where does it come from? Not first and foremost through religious activities, although religious activities are a means to a greater end. They come first and foremost through encountering relationship with God personally. So David's desire for God begins with desperation. Now, we're gonna, there are other psalms that will, will, will bridge the gap from desperation to delight. And, and there are many things that go on and motivate us to pursue God. But here's where it starts. Desperation. Before God is what you want, who you want, you first need to recognize that God is who you need. And need leads to want. So, Here's the point. David's desiring God desperately. He's thirsty for him. He's hungry for him. So what do you do when you're thirsty? What do you do when you're hungry? You go and get some water. You go and get something to eat. 
And that leads to our third point on the pathway toward a satisfied soul. Owning God personally leads to desiring God desperately. And then that thirdly leads to pursuing God deliberately. Pursuing God deliberately. David says in verse 1 again. We're still in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Earnestly I seek you. David's saying, because I own you as my God, because I desire you as the one I need, I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to seek you. I'm coming after you, God. I'm coming to find you and be with you and experience you and enjoy relationship with you. And there's nothing casual about this approach. There's nothing half-hearted about this pursuit. David says it's earnest. Earnestly I seek you. In fact, that phrase, earnestly I seek you, is all one phrase, all one word, rather, in the Hebrew. It means to go after something deliberately with intensity. Back when my youngest son Silas was in junior high, I was an assistant coach on his neighborhood football team. And minicamp would start in August, which was a little nuts because August is hot. And so these boys are out there with their full pads and their helmets going through drills and calisthenics in the August heat. And I would remember, I mean, I could still picture this like it was yesterday. As soon as Coach Jeff would blow his whistle and give the kids a break and say, go get water, here's what the kids would do. They'd fling their helmets off and they would run to the sidelines, grab their water bottles, and only a portion of that water got in their mouths. It got on their faces and on their clothes. Some of them are squirting them on their heads. What are they doing? When they're, because of their thirst, they are sprinting after the water. That's what David's doing here. David is sprinting after God. He is earnestly seeking the one who can quench his thirst. He is intensely pursuing the one who can satisfy his hunger. So when we realize how much we desperately need him and our hearts begin to long and desire, desire God like a thirst and like a hunger, then nothing should get in the way of us going after him. When we realize how much we need God, we ought to sprint to get after him. So again, let me ask you, does this describe your pursuit of God? Is it deliberate? Is it, in some cases, like a sprint of the soul? Do you wake up in the morning, not in a hurry, don't get the illustration wrong here, not in a hurry, but eager? I got to get to God. Now, if I'm honest with you, there are two things going on in my heart when I wake up. Sling my legs over the side of the bed, and I sit there for a moment. And if I'm really honest, on most days, my first thought is coffee. And then the Lord's Prayer. Do you sprint after God? Do you wake up each day aware of how desperately you need Him? And even though there's other stuff going on that day, at work, at school, in the home, 
in the church, in the neighborhood, although there are many things that are important. Like Mary, the sister of Martha, one thing is needful. You've got to get to the feet of Jesus. Because he is who you desperately need. You say, okay, we're, we're in the Psalms, so we're dealing with a lot of imagery, we're dealing with a lot of metaphor. I get this whole idea of sprinting after God, but, but how do we do that practically? What does it look like to sprint after him? What does it look like to get to him? How do we get to him, right? We own him, we desire him, we want to pursue him. How do we do that? The psalm informs us. Look at verse 2. He says, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. In David's experience, the way that he pursued God was by putting himself in a place where he could behold the power and the glory of God. In order for David to experience God, David had to put himself in a place where he could see God. He needed to see him. And so here in the psalm, we find David putting himself in a place to see God both in public and in private, both in ordinary and extraordinary ways. Notice that David pursued God in the sanctuary. In the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. The sanctuary would have been the place of public worship for Israel. It would have been, in David's day, the tabernacle. The temple was built by his son Solomon. But here, the, the tabernacle was the place, the, the sacred space where God's people would gather. And they would lift up their hearts to God in praise. They would lift up their hearts to God in petition. They would hear the word of God from the scribes. They would engage in public Worship And David is saying, there, in the place of public worship, I behold the power and the glory of God. So for David to pursue God, for David to sprint after God, it involved going to the place of public worship, positioning himself to get a vantage point of God's power and glory when God's people came together in God's presence and worshiped. So it was there in the sanctuary in that sacred space, in that holy assembly, what we're doing right now as the church of Jesus Christ, in a space like this, where we're giving ourselves to the biblical liturgy of worship, these are spaces and places for us to behold the power and the glory of God. Church, we don't come to this space we don't gather in this place to be spectators. We gather in this space. We gather in this place to pursue God's presence together. We're here to see something spectacular. It's not the musicians. It's not the preacher. It's not the production. We're not here to get a sight of one another so much as we're here together pleading, begging, God, show me your power and glory. So here, this is how we sprint after God. 
We, we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. We come together on the Lord's day. And what do we do? We go after God together. But it's not just the sacred space. It's not just the gathering of the church. Look at verse 6. David talks about lying on his bed at night, thinking and meditating on God. So he goes from this most public space, the tabernacle, the sanctuary, to the most private, intimate place, his bedroom. And there he meditates on the power and the glory of God. He sees him in the sanctuary. He sees him in his home. Where The point is this. It's not just that the bedroom and the gathered church space are the places. The idea is we can see him everywhere. In public and in private. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, although there's there is intentionality and necessity for pursuing God both in the public worship and in the private places. The idea is this. We can see his power and his glory wherever we are, whenever we are, whoever we're with, alone or with people. Every moment is an opportunity, church, to behold the power and glory of God. which means there's never a moment in our day, never a moment in your life where your relationship with God doesn't matter. There's not a moment in your life, not a time in your day where your relationship with God isn't functioning. It's the holidays and I know people are sick and maybe you had to stay isolated during the holidays, but for most people, this is a time where we get together with people. And if you're host, I get it. At the end of the night, you're ready for people to go. <laughs> but sometimes, it's hard to say goodbye, isn't it? Especially when people are visiting you who are from a distance. They're coming in. I know even some of our, our leaders went to go visit family in different spaces and places around, around the country. But there came a moment where that experience of relationship came to a functional close for, that, for now. Here's what David's really getting at. Our functional relationship with God never ends. Whether we're in public or we're in private, whether we're in the sanctuary or in our bedroom, where we go, he goes. Now, when we're doing things we shouldn't do, that's quite alarming. But overall, it's meant to be extremely comforting. Wherever we go, God goes. Wherever you are, God is. And it's an opportunity to intentionally draw our attention to seeing his power and his glory. So here's how we seek him. Here's how we sprint after him. Here's how we, how we pursue him deliberately. We draw the attention of our mind's eye. We draw the attention of the soul of our spirit to the power and glory of God. And when we see him, here's the next point. When we see him, notice fourthly that this pathway leads to enjoying God deeply. Owning him personally, desiring him desperately, Pursuing him deliberately, 
church leads to enjoying him deeply. What you see, you will love. Notice the language David uses. Look at verse 3. He says, when I, what happens when David sees the love of God? He says, your steadfast love is better than life. What happens when he sees, when he, when he feasts on the living water and the, the, the bread of life? Look at verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. What happens when David has a fresh encounter with the presence of God? Look at verse 11. The king shall rejoice in God. Can you see the progression here on this pathway to a satisfied soul? Owning God leads to desiring God. Desiring God leads to pursuing God. Pursuing God leads to enjoying God. Church, that's the pathway to a satisfied soul. Like David says in verse 3, when we pursue him, church, we will find that being the odd object of God's never-ending love is better than anything in this life. To be loved by God, to be, to be the object of the eternal, infinite God of the universe's affections, is better than life. It's better than anything in this life. It's better than life itself. For Paul even says, the moment this life and this world ends, what do I get? I get more of God. To live is Christ. To die is gain. David believes that dying is gaining because in dying he gets more of God. So we can say this and not just not be disingenuous about it. He goes, your love and kindness is better than life. My relationship with you, God, my covenant relationship with you lasts forever. So when my body dies, I'll go on with you forever. That's better than anything. Like David says in verse 5, when we pursue him, we will find that God satisfies our soul like really good food satisfies our stomach. Let me just think about some of the, the food you've enjoyed over the holidays. You know, the unique stuff that you only bust out once a year. The unique baked goods. Every year we, we go down to this, this Amish meat stand in the Reading Terminal. Schmuckers, his name is Moses. And we've been getting this fresh smoked ham from Schmuckers Butcher Shop every single Christmas for a number of years. And let me tell you something. That glazed ham. Oh. And we still have leftovers. I'm going to close in prayer. All right. David says, think of rich food. And this is David. He, he, is, he has enjoyed the, 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 the most exquisite fare in his palace. He has people constantly trying to impress him. The cooks of the Middle East are trying to impress King David. Entourages from other kingdoms are coming and putting a spread before him in tribute of David, the king of Israel. 
He never outlived his reputation as the giant slayer. Nations trembled at David. They're constantly trying to please him. He has eaten so much good food. I can't wait to ask him about it. But he says, when I pursue you, God, my soul is satisfied more than when I sink my teeth into a good mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. Some of you got that. Look at verse 11. When we pursue him, we will find that there's more joy in God himself than in the best possible circumstances. The king rejoices in God. And here's something that's so significant to get our hearts around as we get this psalm into our hearts and, Lord willing, into our experience. That David's satisfaction was, was not found in ideal circumstances. David's satisfaction was found in having God regardless of the circumstances. Right? Did you notice? Well, let me say this first. You, you might be tempted to think, well, of course, it was easy for David to be satisfied. You just describe what dinner was like for him. It was easy for David to be satisfied. He's the king of Israel. He has tons of money, killer palace, loyal subjects, hundreds of servants ready to do whatever he wants. You would say it would be easy for him to be satisfied. He's living the Israeli dream. You know how it is. It's always the good-looking people that say, oh, looks don't matter. It's always the rich people who say, oh, money doesn't matter. It's always Philadelphia Eagles fans that says winning's overrated, Right? <laughs> you would think, okay, David, you got it all. Of course, you're satisfied. Now, if David's circumstances were what I just described when he wrote this psalm, then maybe our pushback could be valid. This is a little hyperbole. It's simply not the case, though. Did you notice the superscription of the psalm? Look at your Bible. Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the what? Wilderness of Judah. Wilderness. It's another word for desert. David isn't in the comfort of his palace. David is in the desert. And, and you may have noticed some dicey language in verses 9 and 10 that, that maybe on, on the surface didn't seem to jibe with the rest of the psalm. David says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. This doesn't seem to jibe with the my soul is satisfied. My enemies are after me. They're going to be hacked with the sword. And eaten by scavenger jackals. Yeah, that really goes well with a satisfied, happy soul, right? But it does. David was in the wilderness because people were actually, literally seeking to destroy his life. And we know who was leading the charge. His name was Absalom. And church, this was his very own son. That's right. His own flesh 
and blood had committed the ultimate betrayal. He turned his back on his father. And at the moment that this psalm was being written by David, David is running for his life. You can read about this in 2 Samuel 13, how Absalom planned a secret revolt to have David dethroned and and put to death so that he could sit on the throne as Israel's new king. But David's advisors catch word of this coup and they're able to flee the palace and head to the wilderness before they lose their lives. And it's there in the desert, having lost his throne, having lost his riches, having lost his palace, having lost many of his loyal subjects, having lost his son through a wicked act of betrayal, he says, your loving kindness is better than life. My soul is satisfied. The king rejoices in God. See, very often, we don't believe that God and God alone can satisfy the soul until God and God alone is all we have. And that's David at this moment. It's when we lose in life that we realize that having Jesus is better than life. It's when our circumstances go sideways that we realize there's only one way to know true joy in this life. Satisfaction is not found in ideal circumstances, my friends. Satisfaction is found in having God no matter what your circumstances. Oh, look, I have another Charles Spurgeon quote. You will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else. You'll never know how much you have in Christ until you have those moments in your life where you realize Christ is all you got. David lost it all, but he still felt like he had it all because he hadn't lost God. Isn't that the kind of satisfaction we're really looking for? A love that lasts, a joy that doesn't fade, a delight that endures. We, we want a satisfaction that actually makes it through all the ups and downs of this crazy life. And that's what we find in God and God alone, an incorruptible contentment. Oh, my friends, this pandemic could keep going on. The economy could keep going down and inflation can keep going up. Some of you may lose your jobs in 2022. Some of you may lose a loved one in 2022. As you sat down over the last couple of days forecasting what you would like to see this year be like, I can guarantee you this, it won't be exactly what you scripted out. 
Church, regardless of the way it all goes, regardless of the ups and the downs, we can join David, we can join the Apostle Paul and say, I have found whatever situation I am in to be content. (laughs) Because you can take things away, but you can never take away Christ. Oh, I want the best for us all this year. I pray for my family every single day. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace, shalom, full orbed, holistic blessing in Jesus' name. I want to see my family thrive and flourish. Church, I want to see you thrive and flourish. I want to thrive and flourish. But church, it's not always going to be the way we want. But here's what's true about the psalm. Here's what will keep you anchored. Here's what will keep you stable in all the ups and downs of life. You can still have joy. You can still be glad. Your soul can still be satisfied. Why? Because no one, nothing can take away Jesus. God and God alone can satisfy the soul. Notice finally that this satisfaction isn't where the pathway ends. This isn't just, this song just isn't about me getting what I want. Even though God obviously sanctifies and puts his stamp of approval on our soul's longing satisfaction. But that's not where the psalm ends. Notice that a satisfied soul leads to a magnified God. Enjoying God deeply leads finally to celebrating God worshipfully. Notice how David's satisfaction in God overflows into celebration and worship of God. Look at verse 3. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Notice verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Notice verse 5. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Notice verse 7, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Here's how God designs it. And there's so much more to explore here, but this will be enough for us this morning. God designs it this way. When we pursue him, we get what we want, and God gets what he wants. We are satisfied. And he is magnified. Or to put it the way one of my theological mentors puts it, John Piper, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in me, in my life, when I am most satisfied in him. Your satisfaction in God leads to the magnification of God. Church, let's begin 2022 with this amiable goal. A glorified God and a satisfied soul. In all our 
and all of our goal making and, and all of our resolution setting, may this be at the top of our priority list. Owning God personally, desiring God desperately, pursuing God deliberately, enjoying God deeply, and celebrating God worshipfully. And by the grace of God, church, as we do that publicly and privately, we will get what we want, and God will get what he wants. We will be satisfied, and our God, your God, will be magnified. Amen? Let's pray.